Sword in the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. This is Jared Longshore. This is Tom Askell. And Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel, the reformation of churches. And we're so thankful that you're listening to us today. Uh, about the time that we're recording this podcast, we're just coming down from the highlands of our Southeast Founders Regional Conference. That was a good time, wasn't it? It was. It went really well. Um, the feedback has been very encouraging. Lots of folks seem to have been helped by the presentations, and the fellowship was sweet, good spirit. So we're grateful to God for all that took place during that conference. It was a lot of fun. And um, you and I are going to the G3 conference in Atlanta. We're about to be getting on a plane and headed up there. And at the pre-conference, you're going to be giving an address, which really fits nicely with what we try to do here in the first segment. What's that address going to be on? Yeah, it's on the original sin of privilege, and specifically talking about white privilege, which is a a fascinating thing that has developed in all of this social justice um, movement over the last 30, 40, 50 years or so. It's the idea that people have unearned privileges that set them apart and give them unfair advantages over others, and particularly in the racial scheme of things, that those who are white have privilege that uh, is wielded against others who are not white in ways that keep others oppressed. So um, so I get some kind of benefit by virtue of my whiteness, and I receive that benefit from society. Would that be? Yeah, accurate? yeah. I think the first one to kind of uh, float this idea was W.E. Du Bois back in the 1930s. He spoke of psychological wage, a wage that every white man earns uh, each day just by living that he gets benefits that accrue to him because of his whiteness in this country. And then Peggy McIntosh in 1988, 1989, she uh, gave a lecture, I think it was, it was turned into an essay on white privilege, unpacking the invisible knapsack in which she says that every white person has uh, this bag full of privileges to which they are oblivious. So you've got a backpack on your back that is chock full with privileges that you can't see and don't even think about. Mm. This is kind of interesting for uh, Christians to think about. Certainly God blesses me in all sorts of ways, and he's so good to me all the time that I'm not always acknowledging all the blessings that he's blessed me with. So I feel that right up front. I say, oh boy, I can see that, but (laughs) <laughs> I, I get the sense that when people talk on white privilege, you're talking a little something different. Than that. Oh yeah, you know, because again, it's not um, it's it's not consistent. This whole worldview, this whole religion, is not consistent with what the Bible teaches. I mean, the Bible does teach that God blesses people, privileges people differently. And as a Christian, what am I to do? Well, I'm to rejoice with those who rejoice. And I'm to weep with those who weep. And so that acknowledges that, yeah, there are going to be times when people have reason to rejoice that I don't. And there are going to be times when people have reason to weep when I don't. And yet I'm to enter into uh, the experience of, uh, experiences of others out of love and, and a real sense of empathy. Well, this idea of white privilege turns that on its head and says that I am to weep when you rejoice. 
and to see things that God has given you that uh, if you would just be aware of, you would renounce or you would feel sorry for me. And it goes contrary to the way of Scripture. I think what it ultimately does, this idea of white privilege, is it breeds covetousness. And it teaches people to say, well, look at that man. He got three talents. I only got one. And as a result, uh, he owes me or he should check his talents or give them up, which is one of the things that's being said in this movement is, hey, man, check your privilege. So when you start to offer an opinion, you start to try to raise questions and uh, you're doing it from a white space or you're doing it from a position of having this invisible back knapsack on your back that you need to check your privilege. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking the way that you should be thinking. One of the fundamental truths to get down in order to assess this white privilege idea is the one you just said about the way God blesses people in the world. And I'm not even claiming that that's the, the, the main, I'm certainly not claiming that's the only idea for us to understand, but you're saying that there is a God and we're not him. And this God bestows blessings to varying degrees on people. Yes. Uh, He blessed LeBron James with incredible genes that have helped him become what he has become in the NBA. I did not get those genes or anything close to those genes. So, so this is, this is fundamental. This is foundational. This is the way the world works. And we should um, acknowledge the way the world works. As, as we speak of that truth, the second thing I would want to say very quickly is I'm not promoting partiality. No. Uh, so second truth is um, we should not uh, give in to partiality. How does that relate to this whole white privilege? Idea? Yeah, well, we give each one uh, what he is due. So if you set up a system that uh, is set up in the uh, National Basketball Association, then you reward those who can work in that system most efficiently, effectively to help your team win. And so the guy who can score most points, play best defense, get most rebounds, uh, he is the one who's to be regarded and uh, rewarded as being more valuable in that system. He has greater gifts and greater abilities, uh, taking advantage of whatever opportunities he's had to do so. So I shouldn't look at the NBA and say, unfair, unfair. Why are these guys making millions and I don't even get to play? Nobody drafted me. I mean, that that would be crazy if, if they were to look at me and say, okay, yeah, you deserve to play too. You should be drafted. You should be paid. That would be showing partiality. But to pay LeBron James the amount of money that he's being paid given the system of the NBA uh, and not to pay uh, Joe Smith on the sidewalk who can't dribble the same amount, uh, that's not showing partiality at all. However, If we were to uh, say, okay, here's a man who commits murder, and here's another man who commits murder, one of them is white and one of them is black, and they stand before the judge, and all the extenuating circumstances are equal, and the white man gets a lesser uh, penalty assigned to him than does the black man, well, yeah, that would be uh, partiality that would be sinful. You know, that would be showing prejudice against the law of justice. Mm Mm-hmm. In order to try to help us get our minds around it, take the role of someone who believes in the doctrine of white privilege. What are the benefits that are flowing to white people 
uh, from society by virtue of their whiteness? What are these benefits? Well, <clears throat> a lot of it's psychological. I mean, uh, Peggy McIntosh has, I think it's uh, 20, 25 specific things that she refers are included in this invisible backpack. Everything from uh, always being able to be in the company of people of your own race, never having to think about your race, to uh, having band-aids that approximate your flesh tone. And I've even read where some say that uh, calling those band-aids uh, uh, flesh tone band-aids or nude band-aids is an offense because it's uh, speaking of one tone of skin and not another. So the psychological realities of you don't have to think about being in a room of people that look like yourself because you can always do that, whereas those who are not white cannot always do that, uh, which does raise the question. I mean, this is a very ethnocentric way of thinking. This is very much a, a nationalistic way of thinking because if you go to Zambia or you go to other nations where there are other uh, ethnicities, then the whole idea of white privilege is turned on its head. Uh, I guarantee you, as a white man, I have been in villages, in cities, in situations in Africa where I was the only uh, white man, and there was no sense of uh, these privileges, these psychological privileges that McIntosh and Du Bois and others talk about. And so you think, well, okay, well, is that, you know, am I losing something? No, that's just the way culture works. That's just the reality of culture. So you would expect Chinese to uh, operate along uh, bases that are conducive to the flourishing of Chinese. And I go to China, I don't speak Chinese. And so I'm immediately at some disadvantage there, but that's not a reason for me to protest or to me, for me to accuse them of being unfair and they're needing to check their Chinese privilege. Mm. What are the consequences uh, for one's soul, for one's uh, eternal life, if he or she buys into this white privilege way of thinking? And uh, how should Christians address this dangerous way of viewing the world for the betterment, for the well-being of others? A great danger is that it fuels those desires that we have for covetousness, the tendencies we all have to be covetous of others, to look at what someone else has and to, to want it and not be satisfied with what God has provided for you. And so if, if we are encouraging that type of sin, then we are obviously uh, putting up a hindrance to the gospel because the gospel is for sinners, and Christ died for sinners. He died for sin. And if I am nursing my sin of covetousness, thinking that this is just the way the world is, and I'm right to feel this way, and the fact that I don't have what you have is your fault, not my fault, and you should be guilty, and uh, I should be given that which you have that I don't have, then you don't need a Savior. You don't need a Savior. But if you can come to terms with the reality of, okay, this world is full of inequalities, and God has made us all differently, and he is the potter, we are the clay, and the most fundamental need of all of our lives is to be reconciled to him. And when I come to understand that and see that he's provided a way of reconciliation in Christ, and he calls me to embrace Christ, and he does receive me to himself, well, then I'm not to be uh, upset 
at any privileges you have. I ought to want you to have more privileges, and I ought to rejoice whenever God bestows upon you greater blessings than me, because I rejoice with those who rejoice. In our second segment here at The Sword and the Trowel, we are talking about different books that have been influential for us. And today we want to talk about a book by John Piper called This Momentary Marriage. The subtitle is A Parable of Permanence. I remember reading this some time ago and uh, finding it very helpful and thinking about Ephesians 5 and what marriage is. Why does marriage exist? It exists for the glory of God. It exists as a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where uh, the husband is to love his wife as Christ has loved the church, and he is to sacrifice himself. He's the one who's to die so that she would be sanctified, and the wife represents the church, and she is to submit to her husband in all things as the church does to Christ. And uh, I have in counseling, marriage counseling with people, I often look at the husband and say, you know, going to die is not, uh, you know, not exactly something that we just think, oh, yeah, let's, let's, let's go for this. That sounds really great. <laughs> um, and often that shakes down in, in very practical ways, like, you know, sitting on the couch and something needs to be done. A kid needs to be, um, you know, put to bed or teeth need to be brushed or dishes need to be done and everybody's tired. Oh, Okay, mm. you know, get up off the couch. That's what sacrifice means. <laughs> and I've, I've said to them, this truth, this book has been helpful in expositing that Ephesians 5 text to say, you know what, I represent Christ, not only to human eyes that are around, but to eyes that are always upon us. Always, There's, there's always this testimony going out. Christ sacrificed for me. Get up and love your wife. So that's been... It's been a beneficial book for me. Yeah, I agree. I think Piper did a wonderful job in that book. And uh, the, uh, the whole idea of the purpose of marriage, it, it elevates the commitments being made between a husband and wife when they say, I do, because the marriage is not primarily about them. And we lose that. We've lost that in our culture today because marriage is seen to be almost, ex- well, it is exclusively between the, the man and the woman or maybe the families that are being joined together. But the scripture says, Ephesians 5, is that marriage is primarily about the gospel. It is a living parable mm-hmm. of what God has done for sinners in his son. And I agree with you, too. The whole idea of the uh, husband gets to play the role of the one who gets slaughtered in order to rescue the wife who gets to play the role of the one who gets rescued. So if husbands realize that, um, it does change the way we look at our day-to-day responsibilities. So, so many times, you know, men will daydream, oh, yeah, I, mean, I take a bullet for my wife. And the real question for most of us is, yeah, but will you pick up your dirty socks off the floor mm-hmm. for her? Mm-hmm. You know, will you do the dishes? Will you do those things that seem to be completely uh, unheroic and unglamorous? Yeah, everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to do the dishes. Yeah, that's that's a uh, quote that I keep tucked away in my in my mind. It, the recent Obergefell decision has resulted in utter chaos in our society when it comes to the way we think about marriage. This is a call for Christians 
to display what marriage is all about. If we if we really want to uh, stand against uh, these lies that are being told about our Creator and the uh, institution of marriage, then we should seek to faithfully um, love our wives as husbands, and for wives to respect and submit to their husbands. This is this is our responsibility. Piper speaks of headship and submission. I just want to read a little portion, like the way he defines headship and submission, and then give you a thought about it. He says, Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. He uses that word, uh, take primary responsibility. You're to provide, you are to protect, you are to love. And... um, Husbands need to say that, yeah, I'm going to do this. It's not that my wife's not responsible for for uh, these things, but I'm primarily responsible. And so he's assuming that responsibility. Uh, submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. You know, think about the singing harmony. How you know you have somebody singing melody and then somebody singing harmony, and that improves it, enhances it. Mm. The woman is a helper. And uh, in my own marriage, we've been really thinking through and talking about this over the last few years of of Eve being made as a helper to Adam, and that this this headship and submission is in the context of the work that we've been given to do. We see as Lewis talks about friendship is best lived shoulder to shoulder, and uh, something so powerful there about our marriages they're to be lived shoulder to shoulder. We've got work to do for Christ in the world, and I think that 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 blows away a lot of the problems of headship and submission when we think when we mm-hmm. forget that hey there is a work for us we're doing a work you know you're not just submitting to me just looking at me and thinking about me and I'm not just uh, your head leading you providing for you just thinking about you where it's terminating on ourselves but God's put us in the world to to live for him and represent him yeah well said final segment of the sword and the trowel we have been looking at various commands in scripture and what we've been doing over the past few is looking at the ten commandments as they appear before sinai the rationale for doing so is that some people would say hey those ten commandments given in exodus 20 that was just a covenant with israel and those Ten Commandments are not God's eternal moral law, that they're not still binding on Christians, or maybe only some of them are binding on Christians. But the argument goes, if they appear before Exodus 20, then they're not simply a covenant that God made with Israel. But this is what God desires of all mankind, and he's holding Israel accountable even before he gets to Exodus 20. So we've looked at the first three commandments as they appear before Sinai, and today we want to consider the fourth commandment as it appears before Sinai. And this is a really important one because I know a lot of people that say, hey, the the, the fourth commandment's not repeated in the New Testament, so we'll <laughs> keep all nine. The nine right. commandments are God's eternal moral law. But this fourth commandment was only for the covenant God made with Israel. But even the fourth commandment appears before Exodus 20. So That's right. And that argument, before we actually look at where it appears, 
of only having nine commandments, that has a lot of problems with it that go way beyond trying to skirt the fourth commandment. Uh, If you're going to do violence to the Ten Commandments by separating them out, then you've got a lot of explaining to do in terms of the rationale and how that same rationale will not take you down some very bad roads. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. (laughs) But that's for another podcast. All right, so read us the text. Where do we see the Fourth Commandment appearing before (laughs) Exodus 20? It is in the Ten Commandments. Or you're talking about before. You want before. to read, read the actual commandment itself, though. Sure. Yeah, we should do that. Yeah, it says, remember it. the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Where this is seen most clearly uh, before the Ten Commandments is in the command uh, regarding manna. Every day, this fresh, what is it, fell down from the sky Mm -hmm. to sustain the Israelites, and they were to gather enough for each day except on one day. Then they were to gather enough for two days. So the day that they were to gather enough for two days was the sixth day, so that on the Sabbath day they could rest. And that's in Exodus chapter 16. You can read about the details there, and you can read about what happened if they didn't do what this uh, instruction regarding manna called them to do. If they gathered too much for one day on the six days, on the five days, then it would spoil. The leftover would spoil. And if they didn't gather enough, on the sixth day, then they just went hungry on the seventh day because there was no manna that fell. Yeah. I'll read Exodus 16, verse 27. It says, On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And uh, even that, that's usually what happens when we break God's law. The thing that we're going after uh, is lost <laughs> on us. They didn't find any. God already told them that it was going to be a, a Sabbath day of rest. Verse 28 says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So here's mm. the people. What uh, laws? Go, yeah, what laws? <laughs> we don't have the Ten Commandments yet. We don't have Exodus 20 yet, right? Well, we see this is, this is what God requires of man. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So um, the Sabbath is a delight. And, you know, we, we people, when I talk about this with folks, they really want to get into, you know, what, what can you do, what can't you do, what can you yeah. do, what can't you do. It just immediately terminates to that. And um, I think there's there's... There's wisdom involved in that. There's conscience involved in that. And that conversation can be had. But first, just say, okay, let's just rejoice that God's given us a day of rest. It's yeah. made for us. So we should, we should thank God for it. Rest. Remember Christ. Rejoice. Gather to worship. And uh, and know that this is something that God um, would have us do for his glory and for our good. Amen. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. 
To hear more from The Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.